Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Reese. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. Today is Palm Sunday, and I'm glad that you're here with us, uh, whether you're a regular or you're new or you're visiting. Thank you for being with us this morning. On on ca- campus over here at Penn State, the uh, last few years, and hopefully a little bit this next week, uh, students have gone out and asked their peers uh, about what Easter is all about. So they've asked people, what do you think Easter is really about? And as uh, I've been a part of some of that and heard some different stories, a lot of people have responded with curiosity. They don't know what Easter is really about. I mean, if they haven't grown up in church, they might think Easter Bunny or something about Christianity. They don't, really don't know. We're going to be talking about Easter more so next week on Easter But the question I want to ask you today is, what is Palm Sunday all about? If someone were to ask you, what's it all about, could you tell them? Well, by God's grace, we're going to look at that and answer that question this morning as we explore uh, the answer in John 12 and in Exodus 12. Let me pray to get us started. God, thank you for our time together this morning. Please change our hearts. Help us to see you clearly and to see uh, your plan unfolded throughout your word. Help us to know what Palm Sunday is all about. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start in John 12. And just to forewarn you, we're going to go back to Exodus 12 and then back to John 12 again. So you're going to get a workout. But we're going to start in John 12, verse 12, up to verse 16. That's our main text for today. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. Verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. If you look on your outline, we are going to cover this message in three main points. The crowd comes for the feast. The king has been coming and the king is coming. So it says the verse 12 that the crowd came for this feast. Well, what is this feast? What is the scene, the setting for this story? If you look at chapter 12, verse 1, it says six days before the Passover. The Passover feast is the setting for this scene. The Passover was probably the most important holiday for the Jews. It was a week-long party commanded by God. Verse 12 says, the next day. So this scene puts us five days away from the start of Passover. And there's a crowd there, so they're there early to celebrate. It says they have palm branches and that they're shouting. What about the palm branches? Well, God had commanded that they bring palm branches for a different feast. And so commentators think that 
that became a normal part of, of these main celebrations was to have palm branches. And again, they came to celebrate. Now, we live in a very punctual society, typically. Do you ever arrive five days early for a party? What's going on here? Well, we need to know the backdrop of this story to fully appreciate what is happening here. For example, if the current president were to get in a stagecoach, a horse-drawn stagecoach, and ride over to Gettysburg, if we knew none of the background, we might think, oh, that's nostalgic, that's cute, or that's nice. But knowing the background of what happened there, it makes a world of difference. And so here, Jesus is riding on a donkey into the main city of God's people. What's the backdrop? What's the story behind the story? And here's where we're going to go back to Exodus 12 and get some of that. If you haven't been with us, we've been studying Exodus this past year, and we're taking a little hiatus now as we do a sermon series on neighboring and and the Easter season. But we will get back to Exodus. But turn with me to Exodus 12. If you are unfamiliar with the background, just a brief background of what happened. God's people are in Egypt. They are slaves under the Pharaoh and the Egyptian regime there. Moses is raised up by God to call the leader, the Pharaoh, to let the people go so that they will no longer be slaves and they can leave. He says no. And there's a series of plagues that God uh, gives and he warns the Pharaoh that they're coming. There are things like flies and, and water turns to blood and livestock die and there's darkness in the land. There are nine of them, nine warnings to this Pharaoh, but he refuses still to let the people go. And here we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 12, which is going to be the last plague. Now, due to time, I'm not going to read all of chapter 12, but I will read 1 through um, 14 for now. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of land needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Or you must not, or you may, sorry, you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. This first half of chapter 12 in Exodus is sort of the plan and the preparation. And the second half is the history of what happens that night and the next day. Let me point out a few things here in the section that I read. In verse 2, God tells Moses that this is such a big event that your calendar is going to change. How often do we change our calendar? This is going to change your calendar. This is so important. In verse 4, they are to get the animal and eat it per family, the lamb. Verse 5, it is to be without defects. This is to be their best animal. And when they kill it to eat it, they are to take the blood and paint it on their doorposts and door frames. And when God comes in verse 12 to bring judgment on the land of Egypt, he says, I will strike down every firstborn. But if you have blood on your doorposts, you will be spared the judgment. The implication here is that for the Jews, if the blood is not there, if they did not obey Moses and do this, then the judgment which was intended for the Egyptians and the whole land would also come upon them too. Look at verse 23. I didn't read it, but look at verse 23. It says, When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, He will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and pass over that doorway. And He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down too. He's talking to the Israelites. Now, this is very significant because this is different than all the other nine plagues. All the other nine plagues, when it said that the bad thing happened, it always made a contrast and says, but it didn't happen to the Israelites. When it was dark over here, it was light in the Israelite camp. When the livestock died for the Egyptians, it did not happen for the Israelites. They didn't need to do anything. It just didn't happen to them. They didn't suffer the plagues. But here, if they don't do anything, if they don't put blood on the doorposts, they will suffer the judgment as well. This is not just another sign to Pharaoh to let the people go. It's more than that. Verse 17 and 14, God tells them they are commanded to celebrate this event. And look at verse 26. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean? You know, when they're celebrating it. God anticipates that people are going to ask, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you celebrating? And he doesn't say, well, just answer just because or we're supposed to do it. Tell them what the meaning is. Why are we celebrating this? Tell your children so that they understand. All right, now the second half. I'm going to read 29 to 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! 
Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and bless me. So what happens here is that God is true to his word. Judgment comes on the whole land. And the leader says, that's enough. You may leave. Go. Verse uh, 36, it's also uh, helpful to know that as they leave, it says the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the Israelites and gave them whatever they wanted. So as they leave, they're saved from judgment. They go from slavery to freedom. And they leave with more than they started with. Whatever they asked for, we would like this. And then the, the Egyptians gave it to them. And it was God who took the initiative to give them all of these things. But notice what was the impetus or the, the avenue through which this blessing came. It came through death. Judgment came down and either an animal died or the firstborn died. And the result for the Israelites was freedom, more plunder, as it says in verse 36, and they are no longer slaves. Those covered by the death of the Lamb get freedom. And those who weren't, their firstborn died. Well, let's go back to John 12. That was some of the backdrop. Here, the crowds are coming to get ready to celebrate God's mercy and His liberation of His people from slavery into freedom. The crowds come, here it says, because they heard about Jesus. They were already there for the, the festival. But they come to this scene here because they heard about Jesus. And it's clear from verse 16 in John chapter 12 that Jesus' own disciples didn't understand what was really going on. And we know from other passages that the disciples struggled to understand what was really going on. So if his own best guys had trouble, how much more so the crowd? They didn't really understand who Jesus is or what he was about, even though they were singing praises in that situation. So how does this uh, apply to us? Even though the Israelites way back when were slaves and bore the brunt of injustice, just like their tormentors, they were guilty before God too because of their sin. Remember, this was the only plague where they had to do something different. And if they didn't obey, they would suffer too. It wasn't just about the Egyptians. It wasn't just about a sign. What God did with those previous nine plagues, in part, was a warning to them so that when it came time for them to leave and to be covered by the blood of the Lamb, they had to listen and obey what Moses had said. Putting the blood on the doorposts and not going outside that night. If they had missed, ignored, or despised God's command, they too would have suffered the judgment. Now, this is a lesson for us today. You know, we might come to church, we might go to feasts, we might do religious activities, but why? Why are we doing them? Are you doing it just because it's the religious thing to do? It's the thing you're supposed to do. Or is it out of obedience to God? Is it paying heed to His Word? Because unless you're paying attention to His Word and listening to what He says and obeying Him, you are in extreme danger. And you probably don't even realize it because you think you're okay. 
And God, just like the, if you put yourself in the Israelites' shoes, gets to witness all of these things before the tenth plague comes. God is trying to get all of our attention. He wants us to know Him and His mercy and to experience it personally. How is He getting your attention? Let me ask you that this morning. How is God getting your attention? How does He want you to know His mercy and forgiveness? He wants you to know it. And how are you responding? See, these crowds come initially to celebrate God's mercy and His blessing for what He did in the past. But they don't know what is yet to come. Let's move on to point number two. The King has been coming. Verse 16, it says that the disciples realized later on why why people were doing this. And what were they doing? They were shouting. Verse 13. Let's look at some of the things that they're shouting. Remember the backdrop. They're celebrating God's rescue from slavery and protection of judgment from sin. And they're shouting, Hosanna, which means save. This became a normal um, exclamation at feasts like this. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from Psalm 118. Jeff had read a little bit from that earlier. Uh, Psalm 118 was a royal uh, processional psalm that described the coming of the king of Israel. They also say, blessed is the king of Israel. And then 14 says that Jesus was riding on a donkey. And 15 is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it says that, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion, see your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. So king is repeated several times here in this, in these quotes. And when Jesus is riding on a donkey, the donkey symbolizes humility and peace. Now, this is not what you would expect, at least what I would expect, of a king coming into the capital city. Right? Where are his war horses? Where is his army? Where is the show of his strength if you're the king? See, Jesus is the king, but he's not the king that they or we would expect. What does this mean? It means that John is telling us that these themes, these quotations, these themes associated with Passover, the themes of salvation and mercy, They're connected to the themes about the Messiah, the one who is to come, the coming king, the promised true savior of Israel. They all come together right at this moment. Jesus is that king. The focus of the quotes underscore that Jesus is the one who has been promised beforehand. He is the king who has been coming. One commentator says this, about the quote from Zechariah 9.9, which is verse 15. He says, This quote designates Jesus as the humble shepherd king entering the holy city to assume his rightful place. So, as Jesus is the king and he's assuming his rightful place uh, as the king of Israel, the true king of Israel, he's also going and entering the city to fulfill another place. And that is the place of the Lamb. When John the Baptist first meets Jesus, this is recorded in chapter 1, the first thing he says when he sees Jesus, it's in chapter 1, verse 29. You don't need to turn there. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John the Baptist knew it. He knew that King who has been coming 
was Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the true Passover lamb who would die to be the Savior of the world and take away sin. See, this king who is coming is a better and more significant covering than the lamb of Exodus 12. Palm Sunday, that is today that we celebrate, is a clear picture that Jesus is the true king and the true sacrifice. And although the people there at this time were celebrating with palm branches, they significantly missed the gravity of his kingship and his mission. Remember the opening question? What is Palm Sunday all about? You want to know what Palm Sunday is all about? Palm Sunday is all about Jesus entering the holy city and declaring publicly that he is going through with his mission. And though he is the king, he does not enter the city and head towards the castle, kick the guy out who's sitting on the throne and sit down. No, he goes the opposite direction. He goes to the prison. He goes to be condemned for crimes he didn't commit and die a death he did not deserve so that others may go free. If Jesus was going to turn back and not go on this mission, right before verse 12 would have been a great time to do it. Right before he declares to everyone there and the crowd that I am going to go through with this mission that has been promised and alluded to for ages. But he does not. He goes through with the mission. See, Palm Sunday is about God's plan coming to fruition. From the beginning, it was his plan. And this is why I've titled the section on your outline, The King Has Been Coming. See, we need to realize the grand scope of what God has been doing throughout all of history. All of history. And he's had a plan that has spanned the ages. And if he has a plan to rescue all of mankind that has spanned the ages, you know what that means for us? He has a plan for us too. A plan for you and a plan for me. So an application for you to consider is to root yourself in God's plan. And doing so, you will have great confidence in your faith. See, God already knows every success, every failure of your life, and He chose to offer you life knowing all of that. It's already been done according to His plan. So rooting yourself in His plan means that you can take risks. You can take risks for God. You can turn away from sinful habits and patterns. You can rejoice in grace when you know you've done the wrong thing. He already knew about it. And He already offers forgiveness and grace. See, we can't mess up His plan. And as we step back and see God's grand plan throughout the ages, it's a great comfort for us to realize we get to join a part of that plan. At times we may misunderstand His plan or only understand it in retrospect. You know, why did I go through that? Or sometimes we don't understand it at all. But we cannot mess up what He's doing. And we can take great confidence. So Jesus, His salvation has been coming. And in John 12 here, we see Him actually on the scene entering the city. So let's consider our final point. The King is coming. Another commentator said this, By calling Jesus the King of Israel... The author here is indicating that at this point, every messianic 
expectation is at the point of realization. Every messianic expectation is now at the point of realization. I did not read it, but I would draw your attention to verse 23 of chapter 12. This is presumably the same day as the section that we read. Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, this is a supremely significant statement because in the Gospel of John, there w- there's been this repetition of the hour. Uh, Jesus saying, my hour has not come. His time has not come. Again and again and again and again through the Gospel of John. This is the first time where Jesus says, the hour has come. It is time for the fulfillment of all of these promises, the plan of God to save the world that begins and is declared this day, this Palm Sunday. Verse 16, it says that after the disciples, they didn't understand this, but after Jesus was glorified, did they realize what was going on? What does that mean that Jesus was glorified? We read later on that Jesus died and was resurrected and later ascended to the Father's side. It means after all of that, after the plan was completed, that the mission was done, and Jesus was raised to life, that is when they realized, oh man, we see how this all fits together. See, Jesus was willing to go in as the sacrifice. And as he did, he was willing in this scene to be misunderstood and underappreciated. See, they didn't realize fully what was going on here. And Jesus went ahead with the mission being misunderstood and underappreciated. See, if you knew what he was really going to do, we would see much more here. This is hardly the party for the kind of king that he is. But the reality is that as he enters, he goes so that others can party, can celebrate. He goes to bring them life, even though they don't fully understand everything. See, in Exodus 12, God saved his people, and the crowd here today realizes that, what God had done, and they're celebrating it. They're celebrating God's people moving from slavery to freedom. See, today, and for them in this story, they were not under slavery as the Israelites were in Egypt. But they were slaves. They were slaves to sin. And we are too. Slaves to sin. Now that might be a weird phrase to think about. But let me say it another way. We do what we want. Not what God wants. Or another way. Do you know anybody who serves God with 100% of their heart all of the time? No, probably not. See, we are slaves to sin. We do what we want, not what God wants. And because of that, we deserve God's judgment on our lives. And unless we're covered by the blood, judgment comes on us. So this is why when you believe in Jesus, you get the true covering for sin. You get freedom, joy, purpose, life. He takes the punishment for you. 
And just like the Israelites needed to you know, dip the plant in the blood and paint it on their doorposts, we need to respond to Jesus too. We don't need to, to mess with blood, but we do need to believe in him to have life, to have this forgiveness, to experience the true Passover. This scene here that we've been looking at shows us the character of Jesus. A king willing to serve in humility to rescue his people. To be an atoning sacrifice for the world. How does this apply? I have a a few considerations for you. One, are you willing to be like Jesus? Are you willing to be misunderstood and underappreciated? Perhaps you're tempted, as I am, to give way to anger when you're misunderstood or if you feel underappreciated. And my encouragement to myself and to you is to follow Jesus' example here on this Palm Sunday. He was misunderstood, yet he remained humble. And he stayed on the path that God had for him. Are you willing to be like Jesus? Number two, realize that in the gospel, in the good news, in this message of Christianity, there is no room for smugness. And what I mean by smugness is is the thinking that goes like this. At least I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. I was thinking this morning, all you have to do is watch the news. And it's easy to do that. Because the news is all about the bad stuff. At least I'm not as bad as those people. There's no room for smugness. You know, can you imagine two criminals who were um, who had committed heinous crimes having this conversation about which one was was better? It's silly. Without God's mercy, we all deserve judgment. I'm not saying that everything and every crime is just equal footing on every level, but a sin against God deserves judgment. And that demands death. So that includes all of us. So there is no room for smugness. Um, By God's grace, as I've been reflecting on some of these truths this past week, uh, I was in a situation, and I'm sure you've been there too, where friends were talking to me, and they they were giving a number of suggestions. And, you know, sometimes when you don't really feel like you've been heard out, and the suggestions are like, that's wrong, that didn't happen, I don't agree. You know, all those feelings are coming in, and and I really wanted to kind of raise up and, and quash those bad interpretations, I should say. But by God's grace, I was willing, or uh, I was able to not give way to anger and realize, how many times have I done the same thing, where I've misunderstood and I've I've charged into a situation saying, I know the right thing here and you need to change this, this, and this. How many times have I done that? So many. There's no room for smugness. And so by God's grace, I was able to to say no to that and ask them, what do you mean? Help me understand, because I really wanted to hear them out. In Jesus, there's no room for smugness, and we, we can respond in humility as Jesus did. And finally, our last consideration, celebrate the benefits of being passed over. Celebrate the benefits of being passed over. If you know 
Jesus and you believe in him, you have been passed over. God's judgment has not come to you. It has passed over you and will not come to you, ever. So this week, consider, as we lead up to Easter, to share the joy of being passed over. Consider telling others what Easter is all about. Maybe ask them, hey, what do you think Easter is all about? It's coming up this Sunday. What do you think? Or we just had Palm Sunday. Maybe talk to your neighbor this afternoon. Today's Palm Sunday. What do you think it's all about? We talked about it at the church this morning. Another application is to consider inviting people to church next week. Now, that's not, then maybe that's not the appropriate thing to do in the situation. I want you to be, use wisdom. But maybe it is to invite someone to church next week. We're going to talk about what Easter is all about next Sunday. And if, if someone who hasn't gone to church or isn't used to going to church, or maybe a little bit, I would say if there's any Sunday that they'd be willing to come to, it's probably Easter Sunday. So take a risk. What do you got to lose? Invite him out. See, Jesus is the King who has come. Palm Sunday, he declares to the world he is going through with his mission. He is the saving, sacrificing, and serving King. And he has come and he has completed his work. Let us pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for declaring that you are the King that you are going through with your mission to be the sacrificial lamb that saves us from our sin, that we can be rooted in your plan of all ages, that you came to love us and rescue us, not just folks here at Grace Fellowship and in State College, but all over the world. You have sacrificed your son, the lamb of God, so that the world would be free from sin and have the atonement that we may enjoy life and eternal life and be with you when we die. Pray that you will enable us to know you more deeply and share this great news with the world, especially this week as we look ahead to Easter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.